Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. I'm not going to hang around with this particular intro, and I'll tell you why. It's not because I don't have things to say, because I I probably do. Don't ask me right now what they are, because I usually just start talking and then my brain goes into gear and then I just keep going. But what's happened is I was just cooking. I've, I've just finished doing some cooking and I was using some, well, quite a lot of ghost chili powder in the thing that I was cooking. And some of it appears to have gone up my left nostril somehow. Now, I wasn't snorting it because, you know, it wasn't an episode of Jackass, but it's up there. And what happens is about every five or six minutes now, I get these kind of sneezing fits that take ages to go away. So I'm trying to get through this intro before the next one comes along. So I think we'll just get on with the show. There's plenty to talk about all the same. Where we are, the North London Derby, where we're going, what we can do between now and January, what we can do between now and May. Plenty, plenty to put in your ears for the next hour or so. And with me to do that, somebody we haven't spoken to since last year. It's Amy Lawrence. Hi, Amy. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing? Give Uh, us a song. uh, (laughs) Nothing. I don't have one prepared, unfortunately. Uh, Dear listener, I have to say I I messaged Andrew. (laughs) Uh, earlier in the week after listening to the beginning of the last podcast and the um I do think his musical um let's see what's the right word here musical extravaganzas uh, are underrated actually thank you very in the, much in the wider world you know I think they should have an audience beyond the arse cast well maybe I will have to uh, to actually make that album I was joking with James about but uh you know I don't I don't want to uh, spoil anybody's fun at the moment because it is it is quite fun and things are things are going pretty well and it would be remiss of me not to speak to you about a north london derby win particularly when it comes away from home for the first time since 2014 what's your big takeaway from this game you know with a few days between then and now and having uh, had time all of us to consider not just what that win meant, but the context of the game, the context of the performance, you know, what happened there last year, um, how that felt versus now, with also the this continuous thing we have this season where where we go into games knowing that A, we've either got an opportunity or B, we've got to respond to something that Manchester City have done behind us. You know, that wasn't something that was spoken about a great deal in the build-up to this game, but it was definitely part of it. Yeah, and I think it would have been even more of it were it not for uh, a certain footballer with initials MM, which kind of (laughs) overtook 
the narrative over the weekend. But, yeah. you know, certainly on Saturday uh, morning, I thought uh, I felt like there was a heavyweight significance in what happened in the Manchester derby. Mm. And I have got like an almost awestruck um, admiration for the way that this group of players don't seem to be uh, showing signs of nerves or being affected by external things. I'd love to appreciate and know more about whether there's a deliberate kind of hint of siege mentality within the camp because they don't they don't look like they've got that but i've you know the more i think the more things go on and the north london derby was a part of that the more that might become a factor mm. and something that they're probably going to need because it's been so sort of too good to be true so far in in many ways and that is in spite of various setbacks um, obviously losing really important players at different points of the season, Gabriel Jesus at the moment. But remember, there were games without party. There were games without Sinchenko. Um, you know, it's not been this... You've got this idea of the first 11 in your in your head that has kind of formulated this season and become, you know, almost what you'd put on the T-shirt. Mm. Um, but, but it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been usable every single match. Plus, obviously, all the other external stuff that gets in the way and is complicated and, you know, can create issues that need to be managed. But this nervelessness thing is so fascinating because I think it's brilliant for now. And I'm curious, uh, stroke, desperate to see how long it goes on for. Because I do think there'll be a point in the season, and I don't know when that will be, when suddenly it's going to feel extremely edgy and nerve-wracking. Um, whether it be responding to results elsewhere or God knows what or, or goes wrong somewhere along the line, mm. decisions, um, you know, sendings off, injustice, things are going to happen, aren't they? Mm. Mistakes, injuries, whatever. Um, and I think that's where the youth of the team is going to have its its biggest collective test because the youth is such a benefit in terms of like you're riding on the crest of a wave and you feel amazing and you're bold and you're brave and you don't see danger. Hmm. That's brilliant. That's part of, bloody hell. I wish I could feel like that uh, uh, in this part of my life. Afraid <laughs> those days are gone. But I did kind of remember it. It was brilliant. Yeah. And and yet I'll always remember Lee Dixon saying when you know, when we were doing the 89 doc that, because in a way that was a very young and experienced team. There was only one league winner in that group, Kevin Richardson, and he wasn't the most demonstrative. He was known to be quite grumpy, really. So it wasn't like he was leading the dressing room particularly. Sure. And they, you know, they were flying and the great big monster of Liverpool who always won looked like they were miles away. And then suddenly mm. it got absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, and, and and Lee was like, almost expressed it as a sort of like, well, well done us, because, you know, we had it and then we threw it all away. Brilliant. Like, and that, you know, it, we were too inexperienced to manage the situation. And I mean, we should be kind of celebrating at the moment. Uh, I shouldn't be so projecting into these dim and distant things that might happen or might not. But it's just an awareness that 
Arsenal as a group will have to manage at some point it feeling much more tense than this. They've been phenomenal in dealing with whatever tension they face. And of course, they go into uh, you know that game and they've produced a five-goal swing. That's mm. magnificent in one fixture. They keep taking, you know, rubbish results from last year and turning them into something, mm. you know, really exciting this year. And you can't, I can't credit them enough. Their, their, their attitude is phenomenal and they so clearly believe in what they're doing a million percent. And they so obviously have that unity, to use Mikel's mm. favourite word, that identity, that they, they are... They are all in and then some, which um, is just just phenomenal. It's it is a great I mean, fuel. It is, but I, you know, I think it's something that's built over time. I don't think it's something that's just sort of emerged this season. I think it takes time with a group of players, and I know some of them are new, and I think some of them, like Zinchenko, like Gabriel Jesus and William Saliba, even have brought something new to the table this season in terms of what they give us on the pitch, what they give us in the dressing room, and everything else. But I'm reminded of. Uh, we spoke about this. There's your doorbell. It is, but hopefully someone can uh, can answer it. So if you want to press on and give it our best shot, we will. We will. Let's, let's, sorry if I've disrupted you. It's okay. Thing. Don't worry. No, I was just talking about the Leicester game from last season that that myself and James spoke about a little bit on the Arscast Extra as one of those pivotal games, and I, I remember. Mikel Arteta talking afterwards and it was a big win and you could see it was a big win for the belief in the squad but that was the day that I think the we haven't done anything yet the one game at a time mantra came into play I'll wait here if you need to go get that I think someone's going okay uh just slowly enough for someone to ring twice all right um, fair enough but I mean that's yeah that's, yeah, yeah yeah okay so and that's what um, it is I think that 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 yeah. that has been built and it's sort of like that was the day he laid the foundations of that and now he's gone sort of brick by brick and we've got this we've got a lovely wall of it now I think and and that's evident in in the way this team is performing Look, the vibes are that the players can't wait to get on the pitch on Sunday against Man United you know mm. this is good I think that your first question which is a really good one about like what's your big takeaway in a way from from the game and that sense of something extra pivotal, momentous, call it what you will, is is what what was generated emotionally, I think. Mm. And uh, I feel probably on other podcasts that I um, sometimes that I'm on, I can't be quite as expressive with my bad language. But obviously, here it's a different story. Uh, dear listener, Andrew's kind of like shaking his fists like yes but we spoke about this far too many years ago for me to mention which is the fuck off win mm-hmm. sorry kids out there but uh, I, I never found a suitable alternative way of describing it and you know there are strict criteria uh, in my mind for a fuck off win it has to be a way mm-hmm. it has to be somewhere where people are kind of waiting for you to fall um so it's a bit of a sticking two fingers up at, at uh I don't know, the Richard Keezers of this world that say just to, to just pluck a, a name. Random out of example, yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, it has to be something that comes with that extra defiance and sense, a sense of something being a bit more important than ordinary. And uh, that word just, or you know, that phrase just popped straight into my head come the final whistle, 
probably even more so seeing, you know, the way the players uh, cherish that moment, mm. you know, and how they behaved. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you've analysed that to death, but, um, you know, seeing them all sort of it, 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 like a, a kind of caravan, like following one another across the pitch to the Arsenal fans in the in the far corner. Yeah. Um, seeing Granite Xhaka, you know, go back for go back in for Kieran T. No man left was, behind. Yeah, which was just glorious. <laughs> seeing the way Aaron Ramsdale was just hilariously cool in the face of that provocation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always find when people are, are trying to wind you up that if you laugh at them, it just makes them more annoyed. Yes. You know? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the fact that he didn't react in a more aggressive way was a fantastic uh, benefit, I think, for him and for the team and for everybody because it could have flared over. And then the, the narrative is even more ridiculous by those who want to... Uh, want to... Fo- find fault sure but they weren't allowed to do that and if they did they just looked like nits that's a very diplomatic way of putting it after calling it a fuck off (laughs) win i think there's probably other language you could have used (laughs) to describe those people without without causing anybody any hassles but no it's weird though right yeah no it is all that stuff but you know what it is is it just content is it just people wanting content i think so i think it's but you know what it is i think having to have an opinion and thinking i'll say something different sure i think that's trying to get my head around it it's really really weird it is weird but i think it, it to me it feels a little bit familiar as well it feels familiar because I feel like maybe not to the same extent because the 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 internet wasn't driven by these little viral clips that come out of whatever you know um, TV station or or radio station these people are on. That wasn't the way it worked back then. But you know I can remember very clearly after Old Trafford in yeah. in two thousand and three. You know, some of the newspaper articles, that was, you know, where people got most of their stuff those days. And there were equivalent uh, people writing about how Arsenal behaved that day and, and everything else. And, you know, I suppose that's a bigger thing. That was a bigger incident. The way it's sort of happened at the moment, because what, Mikel Arteta is a bit passionate. Uh, you know, he's, he's you know, backing his team. He's backing his players, all that kind of stuff, you know, but it's gone to ridiculous proportions now and they're actually blaming Mikel Arteta for a fan coming onto the pitch and, and kicking the Arsenal goalkeeper. You know that this is sort of, you know, really, really lowest common denominator stuff, but you well, know what? It it's, doesn't. It's it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen parody. if you're not top. It's, oh, sorry. I just yeah. mean it doesn't happen if you're not top. If you're not, yeah, if you're not yeah. annoying these people by being good to an extent, mm. then I don't think they really care as much. Maybe because then, the, then it's all about like Arsenal not winning or Arsenal, you know, struggling or being mid-table or or whatever it is. When you're winning, when you're when you're um, when you are where we are, what else is there? Well, you know, leave them to their parody punditry. And, uh, you know, luckily I don't think anybody is bothered by it at all. But as I said, if it does help to create some sort of siege mentality, and I think really the, the, the parody punditry is one thing, you know, the more serious concern is why um, certain matters on the pitch get punished a certain way for Arsenal and not for others. And, you know, there is a genuine thing about having a look and seeing if there's a correlation there, seeing if one is somehow impacting on the other. But Mm. 
I'm pretty sure Arsenal will be collate, collating a bunch of incidents um, that are all very similar. And I, I would dearly like to know how the FA um, panels, the disciplinary panels, you know, actually work. Who are they? How do they decide what they look at and what they don't? Mm-hmm. Um, because it just seems so arbitrary. And when things like that are arbitrary, uh, you can analyse and ask yourself questions about why they're happening more to some teams than others for, sure. you know, same stuff going down. I mean, they did throw out a few charges last week, didn't they, against was, was Fulham got one and maybe Wolves got one, that if they've changed the threshold of these incidents on the pitch, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But, like, that, that issue of siege mentality, without bringing it back to you know, too long in the past. It has been an important factor, I think, in some of Arsenal's biggest successes down the years. I think it's needed. I I agree. I I, I don't actually think that it's all all that often that you win without it, even if you're the best. I I, I would wonder if there wasn't even, you know, the great... Barcelona, Guardiola days, some siege mentality in there. And, you know, not not that we could see it from the outside looking in, but I'm sure that they had their stuff that was fuel for them. Uh, you know, and and you'll know better than I about the atmosphere in in the Spanish mm. uh, league and the Spanish media. But you know, I, I can imagine that it's it can be intense and be very you know taking one side or the other side and pushing all sorts of agendas. So. Mm. I just think it's, I think if you're a winner, you know, you have to have that it, it, that sense of kind of do or die about you somewhere in your mentality. You can't just go out and think, well, we'll do our best and everything's rosy and let's see what happens. There's got to be that steeliness, that grit, that sense where you fight for the right to play. Mm. Um, and I do like that about this team that so far they've shown you know, on the whole, there aren't many games where Arsenal have played really poorly, are no, there? No. But most, you know, you don't get too many Premier games, Premier League games, where you don't have to exert yourself to be able to play in some mm. way, shape, or form. Sunday will be interesting, though. No, it certainly will. I mean, wh- how much do you put that down to Mikel Arteta? Because you've interviewed him, you did a really good interview with him last year. I read a piece last week, or maybe it was in the build-up to the. North London Derby. I can't remember where I read it, but this phrase stuck in my mind. It could have been about Arteta doing his coaching badges, and he was described as a steely little fucker <laughs> by whoever it was, right? <laughs> I'm not surprised that stuck in your mind. It's, yeah, it's a really good... It's a good one. Yeah. It is a really good way of, of describing him, and I think regardless of what's happening off the pitch that fans might take umbrage with, that they might feel that we're, you know, Arsenal are being picked on a little bit in comparison to some other teams and the way that they behave. I do feel like some of that siege mentality will come from Mikel Arteta as a matter of course, like naturally building this within his squad to say, if we want to win, it's sort of very much an us and them. I don't want to like go overboard and say, well, we're here and everyone else is the enemy, but that's kind of how it works a little bit as well. Like if people externally can give you the fuel to add to that, all the better because you've got this lovely bonfire of, of, um, I don't know, motivation in the middle of your dressing room 
that they're just adding logs to when they hit you with an FA charge or where, you know, you score a good goal at Old Trafford and then they come out six weeks later and say, well, actually, you know, that should have that should have been a goal. Uh, you know, we've reviewed all of our incidents and a few of them that we took away from you, well, you know, turns out, you know, that kind of stuff. But, but it just strikes me that this is something that is quite inherent to Mikel Arteta as a player, a personality, and I think there's sort of an intelligence um, that we can all see. There is a, a passion we can all see. But there's also a real drive to win and to succeed and to – I don't mean to say that this is something that he just wants to prove for himself because I think he wants to do it uh, for Arsenal Football Club. But I think when you are a manager, when you're a coach – you know, how do you how high do you set your standards? Against whom do you judge yourself? And who is he going to judge himself against? Only, you know, the likes of Pep Guardiola, Arsene Wenger that he's worked with. Like, it doesn't strike me that he's going to say, well, you know, maybe I'll build myself up to, you know, this level. And then, no, I mean, his ambitions, I think, are really high. And I think that feeds into the way that he's got this squad operating. Mm. I think he is uh, manically driven, you know. Mm. Um, but I also think that it, he's more multifaceted than that. I think it's quite easy to look at him and just go, there's a guy who, um, you know, loses his crap on the touchline most of the time and gets up people's nose uh, and, and and transmits that energy to his players. Mm -hmm. right? for every ball that's kicked out there, you know, mm -hmm. over 90 odd minutes. But I do think that, that that's just a part of it. He's particularly intelligent, which helps. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, you know, most of the best managers are. Um, however, that intelligence manifests itself. He's got a super sharp brain mm. and he's constantly provoking it. He's constantly thinking, he's constantly plotting, he's constantly analysing, he's constantly talking to other people to see what they think and his, you know, close confidants and, uh, and coaches around him. Um, but I also think that the, the, the part of him that was least easy for him to show, but is probably just as important at London Coney is that I think he's really liked as a human being. And obviously if you're not prepared to put the work in um, to his standards, then he might not show you quite that much of the, you know, the, the fun, mm. uh, warm human side as well. But I think his interest in his own players as people, his care about them as people, uh, is is a hugely uh, major part of how he operates. He'll leave no stone unturned to make sure they're as motivated, happy, and in, in the best shape possible, and and as committed as possible, um, and be in the be in the best place so that they can provide that full commitment happily. Sure, you know, uh, and you can't do that unless you develop relationships with people, and unless you kind of like each other, um, and. I think you'd struggle to find any of the players at the moment. And I think that it's a big, big, big part of anyone else who joins the football club that they have to be made of that sort of stuff as well, where the potential is there. 
Mm -hmm. to generate that same kind of relationship with the manager, with the group. The team spirit is better than it's been in, well, too long to mention. Sure. You know, the people that work at the club, it wasn't the happiest place for a while for various reasons. There's a much better feeling around the club. Everybody does feel like they're part of this thing in, in a way that wasn't possible a few years back, you know. Yeah. And it does, it takes a certain type of person to kind of be the leader of all that, be responsible for all that. I mean, know? yeah, I, I, there's sort of maybe a sense because of some of the things that he has done and the way that he has done them, particularly when it comes to some high-profile players and some of the decisions that he has made, that, that there's um, this sort of autocratic side to Mikel Arteta. And I think mm. that might be true to an extent, but what he's always said about those situations is that these have been discussed, decisions have been discussed, not just by him, but by the club, right? So whether that's mm -hmm. with Edu, whether that's with the board, whether that's with his staff, whatever it is, that there seems to be, you know, that he's obviously front and center and he'll take responsibility for making those decisions and he'll take a lot of criticism at times for, for the decisions that he has made. But when it comes down to it, these are collaborative in a way. And as much as they, they are can collaborative, be, but they're him. Yeah. That, I think that collaboration is more like, this is what Mikel wants to do and everybody agrees to back him. <laughs> don't you think? I think probably, I I yes. I don't see them all sitting around a table saying, shall we have a vote on whether or not to sell a Pantyang or, no, or write no, off no. Meza Ozil? It's, I, I don't think it's that democratic. I think what there is is a kind of um, unified mindset where they like to have uh, agreement over things. But somebody somewhere has to set those wheels in motion and say, this is the thing that we're going to need an agreement on. And mm. then it's up to everybody to thrash it out until everyone feels comfortable and unified with it. And I, I'm pretty sure it would be more like that. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm speculating, but it kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, um, he, he presents these things in a collaborative way, at least. Let's say that. He does. But what I would say is that I think that that kind of, you know, the stereotypical autocratic, uh, you know, hardcore um, Arteta, you know, with some of the players who didn't last the distance, high profile guys, um, you know, maybe he had to be that way to start with. Mm. I don't think he has to be that way anymore because first of all, his, um, um, his status within the group and the players and the club and everybody is so positive that I don't think he needs to do that. And because mm. he's now, because it's now very, very much his, his team and his guys and his staff and nothing's left over apart from Granite and Rob Holding. Um, I, I suppose Bukayo and Emil who were, you know, young, very young and having just started before he, he was there, but you know, more or less sure. it's, it's his guys, isn't it? It's, that I think that if if autocratic Mikel has to come back into the room, like you know, everyone knows Superman will, style yeah. change in a phone box, <laughs> he will do that. Yeah, but I don't think, other than really unusual, unexpected circumstances, he can probably leave leave that dressing up kit in the phone box for the time being. All right, okay. To mangle to mangle the analogy as much as humanly possible. Yeah, fair enough. Let me ask you this because. You know, we're we still have a quite a fair chunk of the season to go, right? 
And I, I, I think it's fair to say there's a level of hope, there's a level of optimism, a level of excitement that has not been present at this club for a long time. And look, nobody can say what's going to happen between now and May. I know what I would like to happen. I know what you would like to happen. I know what pretty much everybody who's listening to this would like to happen. But there is a lot of football to play, and I don't want to take anyone down. It's just that I, I'm I'm curious as to how you feel about this being possible again. Like, we have a team, and we can look at that team and and feel like it's possible for them to go on and do the thing that we all want them to do. And it's a long time since we've had that. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to feel that way. And it's so beautiful to be able to engage with the team that feels so lovable and seem to be sharing it with the fans. It's so beautiful to look around the faces of people going to games in a stadium. Uh, Kids who haven't seen this and haven't experienced that, I feel quite moved for them, but also scares the shit out of me (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, I think it was a lot easier a bit earlier on in the season to be like, well, this is great, but Man City will win the league. You know, that was kind of my Mm. default feeling like quite early on. And I think it was only really you took a pivotal moment when Brentford beat Man City in Manchester that I thought, oh my what the hell's going on here? Like, mm. this is not, this was not really in the script. Um, and if this kind of twist can happen now, it might be able to happen again. Uh, so, but I've been, I've tried to be very sort of disciplined in not being quite as, as uh, one game at a time as the players are obviously using as their mantra, quite rightly, yeah. but more like little chunks that's how I've been dealing with this season. You know, I remember looking at the first group of games and thinking it was the first eight. I thought they're all winnable. Didn't mean to say that Arsenal were going to win them all, but just thought they are. It was quite a kind opening fixture list. And then there was other little groups of games before internationals or, you know, this and that. And I, and I definitely feel like we're right now in the middle of a, you know, of a mm. very, very important chunk. And that's, the Newcastle game, the Tottenham game, and the Man United game as a little triptych, if you like. Um, and while the Newcastle game obviously was a, an annoying result and felt a little bit like, if only, mm-hmm. um, once I, I sort, of, sort of got my head around the result, I just remember thinking I'm only really going to assess it after Man United. Um, so... To an extent, I, I, you know, I feel like this does. We're looking at a game that could be, you know, another pivotal one so soon after the last pivotal one, which is pretty extraordinary. But that's what happens when you're getting closer. But it's still only halfway, so there's so much more to go. Once this chunk is gone, then it will be having a look at the next chunk and seeing what might be achievable out of that. Mm. And I'm. I'm desperately keen not to get too excited, but I'm a bit ashamed that I may be more positive than I was earlier in the season when I was kind of like, it's not going to happen. But hey, you know, it's lovely to be in the conversation and let's let's talk again in April. Sure. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed so about, though. To, to be, hmm? There's nothing, nothing to be ashamed about. <laughs> well, 
just only that you know you know we all know we've sure. all been here too many times where you be- as soon as you begin to believe it it slaps you around the face like a wet fish that's, and nobody yeah. wants a wet fish no they, they they don't least but, of all about their football club but you know we haven't even been in line to get a slap with a wet fish for quite a while you know so this is where this is where i mean i've written about this a little bit where i am i'm you know, I, I'm unsure what's going to happen. I think we have a great chance. I think we have a great team that's really easy to get behind collectively and individually. Like there, are, mm. there's nobody there. I'm going like, oh, not that guy. You know, um, this is this is a really positive feeling, and you know, it might not end in a in the most positive way, but I'm really invested in this journey that we're on having spoken about this i suppose in in roundabout terms in many years is like you know you say as a fan well look maybe we don't get there in the end but you know if you've got a team that's competitive and it can sort of compete for the title isn't that what we're all looking for like only one team can win it at the end of the day and you kind of that's where we are right that's what Mm we've got right now mm-hmm. but then you you know you can get a little bit greedy and is greedy the right <laughs> word i'm not sure if greedy is the right word but i don't think it is greedy i think it's um it's just like that that like come on you can do it you know that's sort of uh, anticipation it's, it's, it's of it's almost painful desperation isn't it like deep down in the pit of your stomach painful desperation yeah like but like i think the thing that i keep thinking is that the way that the football environment is now these opportunities aren't going to come around all that often and that's the thing that's like nagging away at the back of my mind you know it's brilliant just being it, it, it competitive and, and mm. in the race and enjoying this ride as much as everybody is it's phenomenal but we all know you know how hard it is to build an outstanding team we all know how many mega rich clubs are around waiting to pinch any player you might be interested in mm-hmm. and indeed they will be trying to pinch current arsenal players pretty soon that's true which is a bit scary mm-hmm. but is is a reality you know until the Saka and saliba and contracts and so on, and martinelli contracts are actually signed uh, it's a it's a, i'm a bit anxious mm-hmm because the you know we we've seen just recently how how easy it is for someone's head to be turned even if they seem to be really engaged with Arsenal uh, and really happy to be there and you know it there's politics involved there's endless middlemen whose uh, motivations might not always be ideal mm. it's a it's a difficult world out there um you know there's there's heaps of money all over the place more than than is available to arsenal once you get into the super competitive lane you know uh, and and we'd be mugs to think that for all that arsenal are looking at around at players that they can bring in to strengthen their squad that there aren't big shots out there looking at Arsenal players to come in and strengthen their squads. Yeah. So it, it does feel like a golden time, like a golden opportunity. 
and therefore there is a sort of almost extra impetus to do everything possible to try and grab it. And I think so much is going to come down to that absolute incomprehensible thing called luck. Because that first 11 that Arsenal have been able to put out has been out of this world this season. And we know that when I say first 11, there's, you know, two or three others on yeah. the fringe that you would include on that. But everybody knows that going past that, there is an, a nervousness that there might be a little dip in uh, in what others can bring. And I don't know how lucky Arsenal are going to continue to be with being able to put out all those important players. You know, At yes, is not there right now, but yeah. hopefully he'll be back, you know, soonish. But, you know, then are we going to go t- 20 games of the season with all those guys available every game plus Europa League plus Not FA really. Cup exactly and the Europa League it, you know what kind of impact is that going to have on everything mm. it's pretty hard to say but it all feels a bit more precarious in the second half of the season so I think that you know whatever can be achieved in January and some some bodies who can come in to the team not just the squad mm. and make a difference could could be a very very significant. All right. Well, look, you you've brought us on to that topic, um, so we might as well crack on with the January stuff. And you wrote about this in in midweek, and obviously the Mikhailo Mudrik thing didn't go the way that Arsenal would have wanted, and maybe didn't go the way the player wanted. But that's mm. an entirely different story. Um, you say bodies, and I think it's interesting that that that's. Um, where you've gone with that because Arsenal were going to push the boat out for Mudrik as far mm-hmm. as we're aware in terms of the money that was going to be spent. Whether that entire sum of money is available for the rest of January, I'm not quite sure, but it does look as if a, um, a signing is on the way, Leandro Trossard from from Brighton. And I think what the Mudrick deal going the other way means, at least financially, is that there should be more money mm, mm. to to spend in January. Whatever Trossard might cost, about twenty million, it seems there thereabouts. Player with uh, eighteen months left on his contract, less than eighteen months anyway, uh, because Brighton took up a, a, an option on him. It's not the most outrageously expensive transfer that the the club are going to make. And before we go into a few nuts and bolts about him as a player and what what he might bring, do you get a sense that that uh, those resources might well be used in another position? Because there has been all this talk about Mudrik. Where would he play? Um, you know, you can have discussions about that, but we know that he's a front three player and that's where he would play. Trossard is a front three player. That's where he's going to play. But Arsenal now have a little more liquidity on the basis that they were going to spend that much money on, on, on Trossard as well. So do you think there is a, a will having missed out on, on Mudrik? And I think there is something... You know, I don't know what the level of disappointment internally was about that. I'm sure when you're pursuing a player for that length of time and he goes, you know, where he went, that's got to be a bit of a, a kick in the teeth. So what do you think the internal plan might be for the rest of this window? It looks like they've moved quickly when it comes to Trossard. 
do you think there might well be designs to uh, add something else as well? I do. Um, look, let's look at what we know. And what we know is that Arsenal also tried to get João Felix as well as Madrid mm. and were open to getting both. So in terms of their overall resources um, and their ambition, you know, there was a, a plan for two forward players if they could get them over the line. As it happened, they couldn't. So first of all, we can take from that that bodies rather than body is an option because mm-hmm. it was always in their thinking. In terms of the, you know, I, th- I think people have this idea that there's a hundred million quid knocking about for Arsenal to use this January. Sure. I don't think it works that way for a number of reasons. First of all, what we don't know is how much of some of that budget was kind of summer's budget brought forward sure. because they were so into the player. Uh, also, you know, the way that deals are structured means that it's not a hundred million pounds here and now that you take out your piggy bank. Um, but it, it, it you know, it, it, it is distributed over a long period and a number of seasons. Um, and again, how much that affects other deals, whether they can be built similarly so that you still theoretically have maybe up to a hundred million provided you can spread stuff around there's also commissions and agent fees and all this kind of stuff. You have to probably pay that once for one player. You obviously have to pay that multiple times for more players. So there's a, you know, it's it's not a straightforward game of uh, FIFA, you know? Sure. Um, I think that the uh, the other thing that uh, that is a curiosity is that obviously this, you know, a player covering the front three is is dearly needed, but everybody knows that there are other positions that could do with some assistance, you know, mm. there's, is there still room for another? And, and, you know, if, if you get Trossard, for example, does that mean you don't have to get another centre forward in the way that they were interested in João Felix as well as Mudrik? Or is there still room for another centre forward? And how much is that linked up with the pr- probable return date of Gabby Jesus, right? So there's all that yeah. to factor in. Um, are you getting someone, you know, in a way, Mudrik and Trossard are like are polar opposites of the um, the scenario of when you're trying to bring in a player. Yeah, Mudrik was a guy for the future that they, you know, for the long term that they hoped could have, make an impression now. Trossard is a guy who makes an impression now and isn't really for the long term. It doesn't really fit in with the usual signing criteria in terms of age and and so on like that um so it shows a flexibility which is which is needed because you can't be too one-dimensional on the transfer window mm-hmm. especially if your need is is pressing um and then there's the midfield question which is you know that age-old what do, what do you do if thomas Partey is not available you know, and, and, and is the backup available either through an internal solution? Could Sinchenko play there and Tierney go back to left back, for example? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, is Elneny uh, or Sambi trusted enough to do it? Or is there another person? Again, where do they fit into the scale, the Madrid trossard scale of 
how much they're for now or the future or the long term or the yeah. short term, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much that goes into all of these, you know, these these many lists that Arsenal have of different profiles of players, different types. And as we've seen in recent times, you know, with four major players, it's been the second, you know, not the first choice who's come in. Mm. I mean, it's difficult to come out of that Tottenham game and think it could have been Raya in goal. Um, <laughs> uh, Lissandro uh, Martinez. Lissandro Martinez. Um, uh, uh, Vlahovic. And who was the other one? Um, wasn't there someone that, it, that that White came instead of? Am I? Uh, uh, Kunde, was it? Kunde, yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, mm. you can't imagine it now because the four that have come in are so um, so embedded yeah. into the Arsenal project and vibe at the moment that you, it just seems crackers to think it could be somebody else. Yeah. But they- let's see what happens in January. I just hope that there's enough there to manage you, mm. you know, all the challenges ahead, and that includes Europa League. God knows what's going to happen in the FA Cup, but we've got a fair idea. But it, you know, you never know. Mm-hmm. And and to sustain this level of joyous intensity and uh, commitment, and be lucky with injuries, mm. it's just, there's still so much on the line. The midfield question. I mean, the midfield issue you talk about, I think, is one that 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 would worry or or you know, people would definitely have some concerns about because of well, look. Elneny is out of contract at the end of the season. He, you know, he's at an age where you're probably thinking of moving on. Uh, Albert Sambi Lokonga, unconvincing. It doesn't quite look like it's worked out for him the same way it's worked out for some of the other signings that we made that summer, right? But if reports are to be believed, and I certainly believe these reports, Arsenal um, have some plans for a midfield recruit in the summer which I think if it happened would be an extremely good signing. But the the difficulty then presents itself in January if you have that slight gap, if you can't get the deal done in, you know, do you preclude a deal? Do you preclude the summer deal, I mean? And, uh, you know, obviously I'm talking about the, the stories about Declan Rice. Do you make that deal more difficult by doing something in January, which, you know, may go some distance to helping you win a title. It's a little bit of a tightrope situation. And like I saw, you know, I saw it floated that, you know, after the Mudrick thing, Arsenal have sort of briefed all and sundry that this is their summer target. And I feel like, you know, have you not watched what happened when Arsenal were involved in a public transfer tug of war over a high profile player. It, you know, this is not what they wanted out there. They definitely did not want that information out there, but it is now. And that's the reality that they have to deal with. So, you know, how much of a complication is that, and I don't mean the specifics of Declan Rice or signing him from West Ham or whatever it might be, but when you have a definite plan for the summer, but you have a opportunity slash need in January, it 
does make it difficult when you're a club like Arsenal and not a club that is, you know, going around buying whoever they want for how much money they want, giving them 10-year deals, paying, you know, absolutely like they did in the past, making a fucking banjacks of the entire transfer market and Chelsea can go fuck themselves as far as I'm concerned. But you know, that these are the, these are the realities of the market that you're dealing with and, and the pressures that come with operating in a market, which isn't normal or rational in as much as the transfer market can be normal or rational in the first place. Mm. I, I think the, the Declan Rice thing, it was one of those sort of almost eureka moments when you're like, ah, okay, now it makes sense because you know, I think there was an argument to get another central midfield player in last summer, in any event, and that was mm. didn't happen. There's obviously an opportunity to get one now, but all the noises you heard were that Arsenal were not looking for a central midfielder this January. Um, and you kind of think, well, why not? I mean, for God, you know, it seems so screamingly obvious. And then, of course, you see this story and you think, ah, okay, because... If there has been encouragement that's come from that camp, and as you rightly say, if he was an available option and it might happen, it's really worth waiting to have a go at that. But um, it was it reminded me slightly of like this time last year, thinking, scratching your head and thinking, it's not possible to not get another centre forward. Mm. But of course, Mikel Arteta knew that Gabriel Jesus would be coming in the summer. And that's why he didn't just get anybody or just throw money at someone because that money needed to be retained. Mm. And as far as central midfield is concerned, you know, whether it's Declan Rice or whether it's A and other, but if they're looking in, in that kind of sphere for someone to come in in that position, it's going to, and it's probably going to take some quite big bucks, then you can understand why they don't just get anybody now. Mm. Um, however, I've always thought that the loan market, and I know it's not an easy market, but it, you know, it can be, it's sometimes underused and it can be absolutely, you know, a game changer in a situation like this. And I, I, I you know, I'm not on the ball enough to know exactly who, where, and what might be somebody that could be plucked away in the same way that Martin Odegaard was, mm. um, January a couple of years ago but that sort of thing if you can get yourself a good value loan of a really interesting looking player who can come in and make a difference I wouldn't be against that if they've got their heart set on something yeah. else for the summer I'd still have a slight worry if that situation became you know was completely left it just feels still like quite a big gamble for a title chasing side to have a player in such a critical position without, you know, a, an appropriate alternative. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. There's. Um, but you can be lucky. He could, you can, yeah. He could I mean, get through the whole rest of the season and play every minute of every game. We just don't know. You don't, I mean, that's the gamble. That's the risk mm. that you, you take. And, um, you know, I think there is sort of a natural an understandable at times pessimism among fans about those kinds of scenarios, particularly when, you know, uh, Thomas Partey, since he joined, has been a little bit injury prone and has had periods out of the team. And unfortunately, those periods have come at really 
important moments in the season, like the end of a season where, you know, you're trying to get over the line with something. So I guess it's down to Mikel Arteta and Edu and all the people involved to, to see what they can do between now and the end of the end of the month. But we um, we better leave it there. I don't want to get, you know, uh, too carried away with anything. We'll keep our, keep our feet on the ground. One podcast at a time, Amy, right? Absolutely. All right. Listen, as ever, thank you very much. Cheers, Andrew. Go well. Thank you very much indeed to Amy. You can find her on Twitter. She is at AmyLawrence71, at AmyLawrence71, and of course, writing about Arsenal and football for The Athletic. Just very finally for today, we did mention Leandro Trossard in the discussion. I kind of meant to come back to Amy with a, a couple of specific questions about him as a player, etc., etc. But uh, I got a bit sidetracked and forgot completely to do that. For more on him as and when it happens, and it looks like it's going to happen because all the reporting is that the deal is done, everything's agreed between the clubs, etc., etc. We will, as always, have a new signing podcast over on Patreon, myself and Phil Costa will chat specifically about the player, what he might bring to the team, you know, his career, etc., etc. So we will have that. But just some very quick thoughts on it. I guess when you're chasing a 100 million euro in, you know, in inverted commas, 100 million euro player in Mudrick, somebody who had the potential to grow into a maybe a really, really good player. And that doesn't work out. And then you sign a 28-year-old who has been around the block a bit and, you know, has maybe had a, a difficult time in the last few weeks at Brighton since the World Cup. He's fallen out with the manager uh, and all the rest of it. It's a bit underwhelming. I get that. I don't think it has to be a particularly whelming or exciting signing, though, when we look at what we need to do in the second half of the season and what we need to add to the squad. I mean, the thing about Trossard is he is Premier League ready. He's got that experience so he can come in and he can contribute straight away, hopefully. He's also available, and I think that's really important, that we did not want to get involved in another situation where it takes 10 days, two weeks for a player to arrive at the club. We do need people in. We need that attacking depth. And I think he is a good player as well. He's shown that, you know, a hat-trick against Liverpool this season. He scored against us in the past. And look, people will say, this is not the kind of deal that Arsenal do. We've set our sights on younger players. We're building something together. But what we haven't done in the last number of years is get into a position at the top of the Premier League where we could potentially push on and win the title. We have FA Cup at the moment. We have Europa League to play. We've got Premier League to play and we need more depth. Nobody can be in any doubt about that. While I agree, it's not the most exciting signing in the world. It could be a very, very useful one in the weeks and months ahead between now and May. If he grabs us a few goals, if he grabs a couple of assists, if he helps us keep Martinelli and Saka a little bit fresh for big games, you know, and also provides a bit of competition, I, I think it's a, I think it's a decent deal at the price, 21 million, potentially 27 with with some uh, add-ons, etc., etc. This is a this is a Premier League ready player and we are in the hunt for the Premier League and to me 
it makes sense. So, like I said, we'll talk more about the player on our uh, Patreon podcast. You can sign up if you want. Patreon.com forward slash arseblog. Um, it's a fiver a month. You get access to ad-free podcasts, a Premier League preview podcast, a Premier League review podcast, the poorly drawn month in which we look back at the month that has just gone with our good friend, poorly drawn Arsenal. Lots of exclusive content, and it helps support everything that we do on Arseblog. So, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. We'll also, of course, have our preview podcast looking ahead to the game on Sunday against Manchester United. A big, big game. They don't have Casemiro, but they didn't have Casemiro on when we played them uh, earlier in the season as well. And uh, like, uh, like the Spurs game a bit from the end of last season, it feels like this is one where a little bit of revenge might be in the air. So fingers crossed for that. So you can catch all that stuff on Patreon. James and I will be here as always on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. Have yourselves a great weekend. Hope you enjoyed the show and we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you all had a very nice lunch. I know I certainly did. And this is the part of the day where we at FA headquarters assess all the disciplinary bits and bobs that are going on. Um, First up, seems some Tottenham chap called Richard. Richardson. Richard, I don't know. Richard, Richard Lixon. He uh, is accused of uh, putting uh, his hands on the goalkeeper and sparking a bit of uh, shenanigans, I think we would say, among the crowd. <laughs> Anybody got uh, any thoughts on this one? Nobody? Well, I suppose we could just you know, tell him uh, nothing to worry about there, old chap. Now, let's Turn our attention to Arsenal, and there were some quite unseemly scenes, so I'm told anyway, when they didn't get a penalty. Apparently some some chap just caught the ball on the line. A referee said, play on, play on. And the Arsenal players uh, took exception to this, and they said, uh, referee, I think that should have been a penalty. And, um, what do we make of this one, fellas? Come on, Sir Crispin, I can see you're awake there. Give me two blinks for a hundred thousand pound fine, and three blinks for a fine and a points deduction. Seven blinks, you old scoundrel. 
Well, it is hereby ratified that Arsenal is to be relegated with immediate forthwithness, or however you say it. Now, I think that's more than enough work for one afternoon. So, meeting adjourned until such time as we can find something else to pin on those fuckers in North London. Uh, 